drama school. I have been making kombucha at home. Did I talk about this? I've been brewing my own kombucha. That is happening. That is my life now. I do yoga daily and I brew kombucha. And does that make me judge myself sometimes? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Because I judge people who go to India <laughs> in search of spiritual awakenings. I do. And that is why it's hard for me to accept the fact that I do yoga and I brew kombucha. Isn't that fucking ridiculous? It's so silly. It's so silly. And yet, that is where I'm at. That is where I am at. And I'm trying my best to be okay with it all. Brewing kombucha is actually a lot of fun. I remember when I was growing mushrooms at home, it was also a lot of fun because, you know, it's your nurturing something and it's growing because of things that I put together you know like I put together certain elements and then those elements start to have a chemical response with one another and then some kind of fruit starts to bear and it's really an incredible and fun feeling so you know I'm like well I've I've made you know I've grown mushrooms before kombucha is basically a type of mushroom and so, yeah, I started making it. And uh, the home-brewed kombucha does taste a lot better. And it is way more economical, like way cheaper. I mean, buying kombucha for like $5 a bottle just doesn't make any any sense to me anymore. It's just like a complete waste of money. And it's fun. Like I get to pick certain herbs and berries and let them steep in the final fermentation for them to fizz. And then I get to taste it in a couple of days. So, you know, there's like this sort of process period, you know, like it's not like with all fungus and fermentation processes, but like there's a waiting period and that waiting period, the buildup, and then to see it the next, you know, day or the day after or after six days or 10 days, like at whatever stage I'm in with the brewing process. I mean, it took me like a good three weeks to taste my first kombucha batch. And, um, you know, it's I'm still in the learning process of it, like still in the learning journey of it all. And you know what, like, it's, it's great. So if you want to brew kombucha at home, I recommend it. It's fun. It's actually a lot of fun. And it's not that difficult. It's actually quite easy. Yeah. It's about as easy as, I don't know, growing a plant. If you have a plant at home, you can do this. <laughs> you know what? I took a detour yesterday and I decided to give myself a day off. Call it an artist's day. And I just went out had myself the most expensive lunch the most expensive lunch I've had perhaps ever in my life I don't think I've spent that much money on a lunch by myself <laughs> but I needed to do it I was just like I feel like I'm neglecting myself you know like I don't show myself a good time so I went to Blue Ribbon Sushi at the Grove and when I was 18, yeah, when I was like 18 years old, I was dating this like slightly older dude who would, who would take me to Blue Ribbon Sushi for special occasions. And I remember feeling like, oh, this is like such a fancy experience, you know? So ever since then, like Blue Ribbon Sushi became this fancy thing in my head. But it's really, it's just whatever. I mean, the sushi is okay. 
but honestly it's everything is just kind of whatever over there but uh, I went there specifically because Blue Ribbon Sushi has this creme brulee which they make out of green tea and the last time I had that green tea creme brulee was like you know over over 16 years ago so I wanted to have that green tea creme brulee for dessert which is why I went there for lunch (laughs) I had an appetizer I had a drink well it was a club soda I had a drink and I had myself a sushi platter and then I had a green tea creme brulee for dessert and my lunch bill came out to be almost a hundred dollars and you know what uh it was worth it yeah, it was. I wanted to treat myself like a fucking princess that day, and I did. And then afterwards, I went to the movie theater because I wanted to see Kelly Reichardt's new movie, Showing Up, which stars Michelle Williams and Hong Chao. And I went to the Lumiere Theater, which is uh, in Beverly Hills, and for some reason, like their doors don't open like the movie theater's doors are permanently locked and you have to like bang on it or you have to go to the box office and tell the guy like if somebody's not sitting in the box office seat then you just have to bang on the door until somebody opens it which is like a terrible system it's a horrible system they should have a bell or they should just have doors that open and close like normal because it's a movie theater it's a public space but Anyway, they had this like ridiculous uh, setup of a system and it was testing me. It was testing my patience that day because not only was that all wonky, but the parking meters were also wonky and whatever. It was a Sega. It was a Sega. And uh, yeah, like I got into a bit of a tiff with the person who works there because I was banging on the glass, like saying, please open up. Uh, And she goes, yeah, please don't bang on the glass so hard. And it's like, listen. If this place had doors that just opened and closed um, so that patrons can enter and leave as they please, which they have the right to, uh, then there would be no banging of any glass, right? Like there would be no need to bang on glass. If they had a doorbell, there would be no need for banging of glass. I mean, they left me with no other choice but to bang on glass. I mean, should I have stood there silently staring, waiting for somebody to eventually notice me? Um no, I couldn't do that because the show had already started and I had just stepped out to my car because I left my phone in there. What was this experience trying to teach me, right? That's the big question, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just fucking, it happens. Yeah, like people are the way that they are. Um, and that includes me. And uh, tiffs happen, you know, different perspectives are you know, at play at all times. And because of these differing perspectives, conflicts may arise, friction may arise. And it's just the case. It's just how it goes. It doesn't mean that I need to turn it into a warfare, which is usually where my mind is at. I usually want to turn it into a warfare. But, you know, that afternoon, I was just like, let's not let this lady ruin the movie. Was the movie amazing? Not really. Honestly, I kind of walked away from the film thinking like, wait, how is this a movie? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that to be, like, offensive, but it's more like, I mean, Kelly Reichardt is a very well-respected filmmaker, and I've seen Wendy and Lucy, which I liked, uh, but I just don't get how this film is a film. 
because it's just so like it's so quiet and it's so small uh that I'm just almost like how <laughs> you know it's more it's more out of like amazement and wonderment um and perhaps it's uh another message saying well I can go and make a movie if this gets to be a movie you know like I think it's it's more in those lines rather than like a resentful or bitter sort of questioning like how is this a movie if that makes sense oh you guys uh time magazine interviewed me hello i should have talked about that earlier see this is the problem i'm not very good at celebrating myself i was talking shit about myself but i'm not very good at uh, celebrating myself yeah time magazine uh interviewed me with questions about a show called exo kitty which is on netflix and Exo Kitty is not a K drama, not in the least. The showrunner is Korean American. I think she's born in like Virginia or something. Uh, she's the woman who created like those. Is it a movie or a series like the To All the Boys I Ever Loved? I think it's a film, right? It's like a teenage rom com or something. Uh, it's it, it, so the creator is the creator of that, and the person who was interviewing me this reporter at time this white lady she wanted to ask me questions about like queerness found in k-dramas and I knew like even before she was asking me these questions I just knew what her story angle would have been her story angle would have been that South Korea is very backwards when it comes to rights of you know queerly identifying people it's a little bit discriminatory I mean, it's there's there's a tad bit of prejudice in that very concept from the get go, because the intention is to make South Korea seem backwards. But relative to whom? Relative to America? I mean, are we comparing South Korea to American standards here when it comes to queer rights? The article also says that um South Korean queer ident queer rights are not recognized, and this is not true. Technically, this is not true. Um, right now, there is a conservative party that is holding the presidential uh, seat at the moment. Um, so it's very a bit right wing leaning in South Korea at the time, and yeah, the that is definitely affecting policies when it comes to marginalized communities. But it's not illegal to be gay in South Korea. It is not illegal to be trans in South Korea. And I wished that the article would have recognized more of the LGBTQIA plus members work in South Korea before just jumping to these overall broader conclusions or assumptions. Technically, they're assumptions, you know, from a, like a white savior complex standpoint. Assuming that South Korea um, is backwards when it comes to queer rights. But no, South Korea is teeming with queer individuals who are also activists, who are also community members, who exist. All right. It's not like they're invisible. They exist. But I mean, why are their efforts completely not recognized? You know, like why aren't any of them interviewed? for this topic, you know? But no, like there's a whole genre of K-dramas called Boy Love, you know, on Vicky, and that genre is about homosexual relationships between male 
characters, which is rooted in fanfic, which is from a, you know, cis female hetero gaze. I mean, it's very, very queer. Like, the queerness is bonkers when it comes to K-dramas. So I don't understand it when people say that Korean dramas do not recognize queerness. No, it does. It does to a hyper extent. It does so much that it doesn't even realize how queer it is. You know, I mean, that's Korean dramas to me. It's like... Korean television is like one of the queerest things in existence <laughs> from my viewing. That's my reading. The show I want to discuss today is called Birth Care Center, which is a TV NK drama from the year 2020 written by Kim Ji-soo, who's written a few Korean dramas and I haven't seen any of them. Birth Care Center is a short series which I think is because, uh, first of all, they were shooting this during the pandemic so they started filming it in the summer 2020 and then it started airing in the fall of 2020 so you can only imagine how difficult that must have been and it was also very low on ratings so this show only had eight episodes the show follows a woman named Hyunjin who works as an executive at her company after the birth of her son Hyunjin goes to a postnatal care facility where she stays with other mothers and their newborn to recover and to have some assistance with raising a newborn for the first time. And there's so many women that Hyunjin compares herself to at this facility. Hyunjin is, first of all, she's like the oldest woman at this uh, birthing facility. Like she's in her late 30s. This is her first baby. But there are other women there, like Eunjung, for instance, who is heralded as the perfect mother for having given birth to twin boys and having breastfed them both for two years. And she is now a mother to another newborn and she's also the wife to a very well-known uh, athlete a celebrity golfer Hyunjin wants to go back to work her intention is fully to return to her job as an executive but she feels threatened by her current substitute replacement executive who is younger than she is and also has international work experience and Hyunjin just throughout the whole show feels insecure believing that the company is trying to oust her or replace her or turn her irrelevant. Hyunjin also struggles with uh, guilt and shame over her decision to be a working mom as she compares herself to the other mothers at the facility who all devote their lives to their children. Hyunjin cherishes her work and her job title, but she also self-flagellates herself with worst-case scenarios that she conjures in her mind uh, assuming that her son will one day grow up resenting her or grow up with all these problems as a result of her being a working mom. At the core here, the struggle for Hyunjin is her concern with everybody else and what they think of her. And a newborn baby, if you think about it, uh, they're actually the scariest audience because they don't really have any like reaction or recognition at the time of their birth because they're just a newborn and you know there's really no way to know what her son is going to grow up to think of her as right I mean this is all uncertain so it's really a testament to Hyunjin's anxiety throughout the series right it's this anxious feeling like oh I don't know what's going to come next I don't know what's going to happen if I do this I don't know what the consequences of this are so the whole thing is just riding a wave of Hyunjin's anxiety as a new mom. And the show explores some really interesting topics like 
what happens to a woman's uh, desirability and sexuality after giving birth? What happens to her relationship with her husband after giving birth? What happens to her career after she gives birth? So the show does more than explore just workaholism versus motherhood. It's also a fear of not being seen, fear of being forgotten, fear of being turned irrelevant. And I was wondering, like, what is this fear of being forgotten? Which is a, a fear that I also share. Well, what is at the heart of that? And turns out it's the fear of death. Yeah. Everything at the root is just a fear of death. And I'm recording this on the same day that I saw news of my friend Shani Mofat, who was a guest on my podcast back in 2021. And Shani became a mother about nine days ago. Uh, her daughter, her infant daughter Matilda, passed away at only eight months old due to an illness that she's been battling since birth. And while I can't imagine what the loss of her daughter must be like for Shani and her partner and the rest of her family right now, what I know for certainty is that there was so much excitement when Matilda was first conceived and then that Matilda was very loved by her parents and by her parents' friends. While birth care center satirizes the amount of money that goes into child rearing right like a baby's well-being the right um the right comforter the right you know um baby stroller like the the right education the right babysitter the right safety measures whatever it takes right like these parents just spend so much money looking for the best for their children but the show doesn't really explore primal bonding and love between parent and child until the very end through the character Park Yunji, who's been mourning her dead infant son throughout the series. I think the reason why the fear of death exists in us is not just for self-preservation, but also because when we witness or experience death in our social circles, there comes a great sadness. So the fear of death is also a fear of certain emotions, like difficult emotions. But I take comfort in knowing that the great sadness that follows the news of a person's death is evidence of love. Mourning a loss is evidence of having loved what is lost. And the greater the mourning, the greater the evidence of said loss. So I want to hold a moment of silence to honor the memory of Matilda Moffat. 